You're listening to the MVP Real Estate and Mortgage Report. The views and opinions shared on this program don't necessarily reflect those of Citywide Home Loans. Citywide Home Loans, LLC, NMLS 67180. David Hosterman, NMLS 220562. Jonathan Edwards, NMLS 671258. Equal housing lender. Regulated by the Division of Real Estate. Call for additional cost information. Program qualifications and offerings are subject to change at any time. Not all that apply will qualify. Other restrictions may apply. Good morning and welcome to the MVP Real Estate and Mortgage Report. I'm Jonathan Edwards with Citywide Home Loans. In the studio this morning, we have our MVP guest host, Pamela Carter with Exit Mosaic Realty. This is the show that brings you today's most relevant real estate insights and experiences from the industry's most dedicated players. We have a great show lined up. Pam, thanks for coming back on the show today. Yep, so excited to be asked back. I love that you that you were in. It's been way too long since you were on the show, but I love that you appreciated the new studio that we're in here with ESPN. It's awesome. It's beautiful. So it's fun. Very nice studio. Lucky to have Pam in today. And we've got a great topic today. Today we are going to talk about the purchase contract, which on the surface, Pam, I get probably doesn't sound that exciting, but we're going to make it exciting. And there are some really interesting pieces to the purchase contract that we've that we think are really important that we're going to touch on today um, and help kind of educate out there right awesome all right so stay tuned for a triple play of denver's hottest listings and we're going to throw out our yellow card disclaimer that citywide home loans and exit mosaic realty are not affiliated entities listeners are not required to use either participant to work with the other participant and citywide home loans has no affiliation with the federal housing administration or the u.s department of veterans affairs Pam, thanks for coming back on the show. I know you pretty well, but our audience may not know you very well. Tell us a little bit about um, your experience in real estate here in Colorado. Are you from Colorado? Uh, yes, I'm a native. Wow, yeah. you're a rare breed. I know. Very, uh, very special here. Very cool. Tell us about your real estate career. I've been in real estate for a little over 19 years. Um, I absolutely love the business and I spend a lot of my time volunteering for the Women's Council of Realtors and other volunteer organizations in real estate. Um, just always trying to elevate our professionalism and the industry as a whole. Tell me a little bit about that Women's Council that you're involved with. Yeah, Women's Council of Realtors many, many years ago, I wish I could quote the date, um, women, if you can believe it, were not allowed to be realtors. It was a male-dominated business. And so um, uh, a lady, and I wish I, I had more, more detail, I apologize, right. um, formed the Women's Council of Realtors to give women a support system to help them grow their business in real estate. So right now, you know, we're in all the states. We... Um, I, I we have thousands and thousands of members, and um, next year I'll be the state president. Awesome! Yeah, very cool, very cool. You are very involved, yes, and stuff like that. So, and and I think that's great, Pam. So, um, that gives us a good idea. And how long have you been in real estate? Nineteen years. Nineteen years in real estate here in Colorado. Um, so definitely a veteran. Um, I've known you for years, Pam, um, and and I know that you're an excellent realtor with a lot of um, experience. And I think we have 
there's what forty something thousand real estate agents in the state of Colorado. Forty three thousand as of yesterday. The average agent does less than two or less than three transactions per year. Yes. Am I right about that? Is that a yes. statistic I didn't just make up? <laughs> so that's insane, though, because, I mean, I think if, if you think about that, the average agent is barely doing much business. And in order to learn more about this business and to provide great advice for your clients, you've got to be out there and you've got to be buying and selling homes with your clients to learn the right way to do it. And Pam's been doing that for 19 years. So if you're out there, you're thinking about purchasing a home and you want an experienced real estate professional, give Pam a call. Pam, what's the best phone number for you? Oh, 720-284-4121. All right, let's dive in, but not too deep yet. I want to know a little bit about what you're seeing on the ground, boots on the ground in real estate here in the Denver area right now. Well, right now, um, the media... Right now, the media is making it seem like the sky is falling. Definitely. But, but, you know, our biggest issue, as it's been since the pandemic, is lack of inventory. So with low inventory, uh, you just don't have the options that you would have in a normal market. So what we're seeing is homes that are priced right, that are in good shape, clean, you know, not, you know, falling to the ground, are still... (laughs) getting offers at asking, sometimes above, and sometimes multiple offers. The problem that we're seeing is that people are afraid to get off the fence and sell their homes because they're afraid they're not going to find something. So we just need people to, to, to have some confidence to know that, you know, I believe yesterday the rates were, you know, in the low sevens, the high sixes. You would know better than I would yeah, about you're right, that. Right in line. There. I think the national average yesterday ended at 6.92 on a uh, conventional loan. And your FHA loan is usually half, roughly half a point less, half a percentage point less. So like mid sixes. So, so it's not the sky's falling, you know. It's not the sky is falling. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of agents about this lately. You've got to think like we've actually been here for like a year, year and a half now where rates have been in the sixes. I mean, we dipped down into the high fives at one point. We dipped into the mid sevens at one point. But really, we've been in the sixes for well over a year now. And I think that it's it's important that people kind of understand and grasp this is the new reality. Two and three percent is gone. That ship has literally sailed and it may not be coming back. So if you want to buy a home, this is a great time to do it because, yeah, your interest rate might be 7%, but that's better than 9% if rates go up. And there's a lot of people talking about rates going up. Now, if they do drop down to five, you can always refinance if it makes sense financially, but rates are not that bad. Historical. I looked this up, Pam. You're going to appreciate this. The highest the interest rate ever was was in October of 1981, and I was four months old, and it was 18.36%. Oh, my goodness. Was the interest rate in October of 1981. We are at 6.92 today, almost a third of that. So it's not, the sky is not falling. 
I'm still marveling that you're you were four months old. I'm not going to tell you how old I, like I was. To throw that out there. Yeah, Pam. you're just like trying to, to make me there. feel old. I'm That's not okay. trying to make you feel old. <laughs> I was actually sort of trying to make myself feel a little bit older. I actually turned 42 tomorrow. Oh, happy so birthday! I, yeah, thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, so anyway, that was 42 years ago, 41 years ago, and interest rates have never gotten back up that high. And we're still in the sixes. It's not that bad. It really is not that bad. And you can always refinance if you need to, right? So um, I agree with you on that. I don't think the sky is falling. So let's get out there and buy some houses, right? If you're, let's if you would it. like to purchase a home, that's really kind of what this show is going to be about. Not so much the process, but really just the purchase contract. Mm-hmm. You've, you've gotten pre-approved. You've talked with your real estate agent. You guys have set up your parameters. You know where you want to live and roughly how many bedrooms and bathrooms and square footage and garages and all the stuff that people want. You found your home. You put your offer in, and now you're under contract. So let's talk about that contract. Okay. All right. So first thing I want to talk about because it comes early on in the contract, not because I think it's the most exciting, but inclusions and exclusions within the contract. Talk to us a little bit about what that means in, quite frankly, how important that can be. Well, it's depending upon your buyers and your sellers. Um, Typically, when you write a contract, you should be aware of what is stated in the multiple listing service. What is included, what is excluded. Now, that is not the end all the life. Sometimes you fall in love with something that is excluded. You can always write that into the contract and the seller has the option to negotiate that or to say, heck no, that's my grandma's, I'm taking it with me. So that's kind of that's kind of the big thing as far as inclusions and exclusions. A lot of times, too, you're looking at appliances, washer, dryer, refrigerator. So just as you're looking through homes, be clear on what is stated as included and excluded, but also what you would like, because it's always negotiable. That's a great point. It's always negotiable, right? What's Is there a general rule of thumb for inclusions or exclusions, but probably more inclusions, like if it's attached to the house, do you sort of assume that it's going to come with a contract unless otherwise stated? Definitely. Okay. So anything attached to the home is included. Okay. Now, that's not to say that there is something that's attached that, like I said, your grandma's antique mirror, it may be listed as an exclusion. You need to have a professional looking at this information and knowing what it is. You also need to reiterate that in the purchase contract so that all parties are clear. This is an inclusion. This is an exclusion. So, you know, this is getting a little nitpicky here, I think, but this is a funny story that I heard along the way. Uh, TV mounts become kind of an issue because if you are the seller of a home and you move all your stuff out, but you leave the mount on the wall, not all buyers are real happy with the mount being on the wall because if they're not going to use it and they don't always use it, they have to remove it. And now they have four nice half inch holes in the wall, right? What do you, what do you, what's your kind of take on this, either from buyer or seller standpoint? Well, from the seller standpoint, if you want to take the mounts, it should be listed as an exclusion. From the buyer standpoint, if you're not going to want the mounts, then you need to also list them as an exclusion or the reverse, an inclusion. Okay. Um, I find that most sellers and most transactions, they leave the mounts because of the holes in the wall. Yeah. 
And most people are going to want to put the TV where the mount is because you've got all of your cables and everything yeah, yeah. running out of there. So, again, uh, it's what is written per the contract. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. So, I've, I'm sure you've heard some funny stories along the way. I have a great story when it comes to exclusions. There was a, an, a great agent that we work with, and I won't mention any names, although if he was here, he, w- he would be fine with it, but I won't. He His very first deal that he did in the early 90s, I think it was, it was a property that had like a barn and, and a tractor and some land to it. And when it, the, the buyers thought that they were getting the tractor with the property, and they do the walkthrough the day of the um, the day of, and uh, in in they were like, "Where's the tractor? It's not here." And uh, they get to the closing table and they talk to him like, "Hey, uh, you know, we 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 saw that the tractor wasn't there. Do you know where it is? Or like, is it going to be dropped off?" Or what? And they were like, "No, you don't. You're not getting the tractor." So the tractor ended up costing this agent eighteen thousand dollars. So he basically took his commission check and turned it over and and gave them the funds for it. He did the right thing in my opinion, but it's one of those things where like it can be really important if you're expecting to get something with the sale. This purchase contract is where it needs to be stated, right? Exactly. And everybody involved in this transaction needs to realize this is a contract, a legal and binding document. So if it's not in the contract, I don't care what MLS says. I don't care what you say. I don't care what what your agent says. If it's not written down, guess what? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Nope. So what about parking spaces and storage facilities? And this is really more for condos and townhomes. Um, but we, we there was a scenario once, I don't think it was anything we had anything to do with. I think I read it online. Uh, somebody purchased a condo and they were supposed to get a space in the garage, but the space wasn't included in the contract. So they went back and sued the seller afterwards for, I don't know, not including it or, or whatever. But that's kind of a weird thing, but you got to think about stuff like that, right? It maybe it doesn't automatically come with it. Well, and a lot of times, like, um, you know, da- especially downtown, you can sell your um, parking space yeah. on its own. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are parking spaces listed in the MLS. Yep. So, yes, again, if it's not in the contract, you can't assume. Yeah. yeah, it's a condo. There's a parking space. It needs to be deeded to you at yeah. closing. It's not just, oh, well, I'm buying a condo. I get a parking space. Right. No. <laughs> Same thing with a storage unit, a shed. Yeah. You know, if the shed's on the property when you go go see the home and it's not listed and it's not listed in the contract, guess who doesn't get a shed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, so these are things that, that you may not think about. But this, again, is where an experienced real estate professional comes in. A new agent probably isn't going to think of some of these things and may not include it in there. And yes, they may have, you know, their insurance to cover their their butts. But at the same time, you don't want to have to go down that road. You want to make sure you've got an experienced real estate professional working for you so that they think of all the things that you wouldn't think of or a new agent may not. Dates and deadlines. We don't have to go through every one of them, mm-hmm. but there are some important ones. You want to highlight a couple of the dates and deadlines of that course. come to mind? Yeah, and and everyone needs to remember that it's not just dates and deadlines like, oh, it's nice to have it done at this time. But those are dates and deadlines that people, that will affect the contract. 
and moving forward in the contract. So one of the big ones is the earnest money. Earnest money, let's say the deadline is tomorrow. You don't get the money in there tomorrow, the contract is void. Mm -hmm. So let's say the seller has a backup offer. You know, they they had somebody come in at the 11th hour. It was too late. They signed it. You don't turn in your earnest money. Contract's dead. They're going with the better offer. In this, I am so glad you brought that up because I hadn't thought about that when I was putting the outline together. But that's a great point. And that happens automatically, right? So if your earnest money is due, so you get under contract, and then you need to drop your $3,000 earnest money off at the title company or wire it to the title company or however you want to get it to the title company. But the title company has got to receive that $3,000 by, let's say, 6 p.m. because that's what was in the contract. Again, that was in the contract. If it's 601, technically you're out of contract and that backup buyer is now in contract on that property and you just lost the property. Am I explaining that correctly? You are exactly correct. The um, and, and that's where the dates and deadlines, it isn't just, you know, let's get it done. But you're giving the seller the option or the opportunity to null and void the contract. Yeah. So, you know, inspection, there's another deadline. Let's say, you know, you do your inspection, everything's great. You get the objection over to them. Everything's fine. You don't get the resolution in time. Okay. If you're not on top of your dates and deadlines, guess what? You're out of contract. Well, you're out of contract. But on the inspection part of it. If they don't respond to the objection, then you're done. Yep. I mean, you you have no recourse. Yeah. See, and that's that's it. The other one is, you know, um, the the uh, the original date and deadline that's the most important is the acceptance. Yeah. You yep. know, you send a contract over and you ask them, we need to know by twelve o'clock on Saturday. Yep. If you don't hear by twelve o'clock on Saturday, they can't say, oh. Guess what? It's three o'clock. We want it. They've gone on to plan B. Yep, absolutely. Got to be in the contract. It's (laughs) the contract is the law. It is. And I just wish all agents and um, clients would know that, that if it isn't by the contract, it doesn't exist. And and let's be honest about this contract in Colorado. It is an 18 page contract now, right? Yes. 18 pages. I mean, you almost need to be attorney an attorney yourself to read and understand this contract. I mean, I've been doing it for 11 years. I've got a pretty good grasp of it, but but it is a pretty involved, and they redo it every two years, right? Yes. They go over it, make their changes, make it more legal, it seems like, every two years. It's relatively complicated. So while you don't have to hire a real estate professional... I highly recommend it because there's a lot of legalese in there that uh, you're going to want to know and understand. Seller concessions. We've seen more in the way of seller concessions the last couple of years, although they never really went away. Even during the COVID craziness, we still saw seller concessions. But if you're not familiar with the term seller concessions or where the sellers are going to give the buyer funds uh, typically to go towards like their closing costs, right? Um, and so you can use those for... 
to cover, you know, title costs, lender costs, county recording fees. You can actually cover uh, escrow with it, taxes, insurance, HOA dues, those kinds of things. Uh, we've seen it recently in the last year or two, more so to buy down the interest rate. When interest rates double or even triple in some cases, people are looking for ways to keep the rate as low as they can. They're using those seller concessions to either do a permanent buy down on their 30-year fixed rate or temporary buy-downs, which we hadn't seen in years, but have come back pretty strong in, in the last year or so. A temporary buy-down is where you buy the interest rate down for a specific period. So the most popular is probably a 2-1 buy-down. In the first year, your interest rate is 2% less than it will be. In the second year, it's 1% less than it will be. And then years 3 through 30, you've got your interest rate. But we have seen more in the way of seller concessions that way. It's got to be in the contract, though, doesn't it? It has to be in the contract. And remember, when you put a request for a seller's concession, because I have um, some lenders who they're like, well, just ask for a seller concession. It's like, yeah, it sounds great and wonderful. But remember, you're asking the seller to give you, in addition to taking a lower offer, to give you cash back. Yep. So it's net-net, it's affecting the seller. Mm-hmm. So what I recommend is if the home has been on the market for a week or two, Seller concession, yes, let's ask for it. If it's slow selling season, November, December, January, seller concessions all day because you never know. But when you're looking again at that perfect home priced perfectly and it's just went on the market, you're not going to get a seller to say, yeah, here's $9,000. I've got seven other offers. Exactly. You know, six of which don't ask me for seller concessions to take money out of my pocket. Exactly. So. So it's not always the best the best option for a buyer to do seller concessions. Although I know a lot of buyers that need the help with closing costs because, you know, they're, they're first time home buyers. They don't have the, the money that they need to put in and to pay closing costs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great strategy if it's used correctly. Exactly. You are listening to the MVP Real Estate and Mortgage Report on ESPN Denver 1600 AM. Check out past episodes on our podcast at denversports.com. For mortgage questions and information, give us a call at 303-921-5747. If you'd like to get in touch with Pamela Carter about buying or selling your next home, she can be reached at 720-284-4121. All right, give, give Pam a call if you have some questions or would like to talk to her about buying or selling your next home. I have got a few very hot listings that I'm going to go over real quick here. The first one is Lori Anders with Brokers Guild Real Estate. She has a killer property at 966 Dogwood Drive in Golden. It's listed at a million dollars. And this is a single family residence, just about 4,000 square feet, just shy of that. Six bedrooms, three bathrooms. Are you looking for mountain living with convenience of an easy commute to the city? This is the one. This has gorgeous Genesee, or this is a gorgeous Genesee home with newly remodeled walkout basement that features high ceilings, large open family room. This is about as technologically advanced a home as you can find. It's got Tesla solar panels and everything is hooked up to the internet from what I can tell. And after talking to Lori, it's a great property. And if you'd like some more information, give Lori a call at 303-564-5918. 
Also, I've got Rhonda Richardson. Rhonda's got a great property at 6546 South Teller Court in Littleton. Currently listed at 600,000 single-family residents with just over 2,400 square feet. A three-bedroom, three-bathroom. Welcome to the Woodmar Square neighborhood located within walking distance to Columbine High School. Uh, very close to parks, shopping, Southwest Plaza, dining, and easy access to 470 Highway. This home offers the perfect combination of privacy and convenience. Give Rhonda Richardson a call with Brokers Guild at 720-270-2753. And finally, a past guest from the... Uh, MVP Real Estate and Mortgage Report, Mark Scanlon, has a great unit at 204 West 5th Avenue, Unit B in Denver. It's a townhome, and I believe he actually has Unit A listed as well. Uh, This one here, Unit B, is $599,900, about 800 square feet, two-bed, two-bathroom, stunningly remodeled condominium in the Baker Historic District. This property was basically taken down to the studs and rebuilt. Close to downtown Denver Hospital, shopping and fine dining. Mark Scanlon can be reached at 303-435-4264. All right, Pam, we've got a few minutes left here to keep talking about our contract. Um, Next on the list is the appraisal. Let's talk a little bit about the appraisal, the process for the appraisal, and the impact of the appraisal. Okay, so if you're obtaining a loan, you're going to have an appraiser who needs to, who's hired by the mortgage company to come out and assess valuation. No mortgage company is going to want to go out and, and put a loan out on a home that's overpriced, okay? Mm-hmm. They, they need to make sure that if something happens and you default, that they're going to be able to sell it, although they don't want to, but they, they can and that they will still be even, so what's going to happen is the appraiser is going to reach out to the listing agent and say, hey, I want to appraise the home next Thursday or whatever. The listing agent's responsibility is to either speak with that appraiser, meet with that appraiser, or provide information to the appraiser. What I'm seeing in the market now is that agents aren't doing that. I had an appraisal this morning. I met the appraiser at the property. I showed him all of my comparable properties, and it's it substantiated my valuation and my pricing. So if you're using somebody, ensure that you want the home to appraise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's great that you do that. And there's certainly agents out there that don't go the extra mile like that for their clients. Like you said, I mean, some will just not show up at all. They'll just schedule it. Um, and, and yes, ultimately the appraisal is being done because the lender wants the appraisal to be done. If you pay cash for a home, you don't have to have an appraisal done. And most people probably don't. Right. So that's really more for the lender than anybody else. But I think it also helps to confirm for some people that they're paying the right price or the wrong price in some cases for that. Now, what if an appraisal comes in low and that happens every once in a while, right? we got to get back to the negotiating table. Well, yes. Um, if it comes in low and I have... Um, information that supports the pricing, then I'll ask my my mortgage person, my lender, to challenge it. An appraisal rebuttal. Yes, is yep. that I, mm-hmm. and That's what we call it. Yeah. and sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't <laughs> because appraisers, a lot of them are kind of they've got an ego. Mm-hmm. They think that they did it right. If that is the case, and the property value stands with the appraisal, 
then what I do is I go back to the li- if I'm representing the buyer, go back to the listing agent and say, hey, here's where we are. Sometimes you can get them to negotiate. Sometimes you need to go to your buyer. This is this is a tough one, and it's probably not on my top five list of favorite things to do. Yeah, because one of three things has to happen, right? The sellers have to agree to reduce the price of the property, which they don't want to do. The buyers have to pay more for the property, which they don't want to do. Or they got to meet somewhere in the middle. And that's usually what ends up happening, at least in my experience. Usually, both parties still want to make it work. They meet somewhere in the middle, and they're able to move on. But it certainly could result in the termination of the contract. Definitely. All right. Uh, Lead-based paint, not a big one, but kind of important, right? Lead-based paint is something, again, more for the lender than anything, I think. Uh, We need to know, well, I guess for the real estate community as well, lead-based paint was used prior to, I want to say, 1978. Very good. Yes. So prior to 1978, there was lead used in the paint. And um, in the event that your children go and eat the paint chips that were painted on the walls before 1978, they could get really sick. And so everybody needs to know about that. It seems like kind of a funny thing, but it's actually a very real thing. And the lender requires that, that the borrowers have signed the document stating that they have received it. Yeah, basically what you're doing as a seller is you're notifying them that your home was built prior to 1978 and that there could be lead-based paint. And it's basically, it's just a disclosure. It's letting you know that it could be there, making you aware of what it is and that you have options. You can have it tested. You can, you know, just there's different options on the lead-based paint disclosure. Um, most in 19 years, I have never had anybody ask for a lead-based paint test, but it's always an option. And you know what? People have different fears in their life. For so, sure. Yep. Yep. No, that's a great point. Um, and then kind of the last point that I was going to touch on here is the closing date. And this goes back to the dates and deadlines a little bit, but we didn't touch on closing and possession, uh, which are actually two different things. So just because you close on a certain day does not mean that per the contract, you actually take possession of that property. Um, in most cases, that happens on the same day. But sometimes you have rent back. Sometimes the seller you know, has asked for a couple extra days to get their stuff together and get out. Um, so the closing date's important, especially for the lender as well. So if you, it, my two cents from a lending standpoint is if you have a transaction and you would like to close in less than 30 days, it's a, it's a good idea to call the lender and say, hey, just wanted to let you know we're going to do a three-week close here. Are you guys good with that? 30 days is sort of the industry standard, right? Yes. So. Yeah. Th- um, and I, I have lenders that can close in 14 days. I, you know, I've seen just different, uh, different dates and deadlines. Yep. And 14 days is definitely doable, but the lender probably wants to know ahead of time that that's going to be the case. Pam, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. If you'd like to get in touch with Pam, she can be reached at 720-284-4121. Thank you for tuning in to the MVP Real Estate and Mortgage Report. If you have a question about financing for your next home or refinancing a current mortgage, give us a call at 303-921-5747. Don't miss miss next week's show right here on ESPN Denver 1600 every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can find past episodes on our podcast at denversports.com.